0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: On behalf of everybody at heritageradionetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hurstranch.com. Greenhorns, this is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio by young farmers for young farmers, coming to you every day from a new place, every week, I mean, every week on Thursdays. And uh, today I'm in the Pacific Northwest, and my, and my guest on the show, Clint, he's also from the Pacific Northwest, Clint Lindsay, A2R Farms. How are you doing today, Clint?
2: Hi, Severin. Nice to talk to you again.
1: Nice to talk to you again. So it's been a long season for you, I guess. Tell, tell, us, tell yeah. us about the Willamette Valley in which you live, first of all, and then we can get more specific.
2: Tell us about what about the valley, sorry?
1: Well, tell us about the Willamette Valley and what's growing there.
2: Okay. Um, well, the Willamette Valley is a... Um, Heavily populated for Oregon, uh, part of Oregon in the northwest corner of the state. And the Willamette Valley is a river running through it. And we have roughly a million arable acres in the Willamette Valley, dominated by grass seed. Um, There's quite a bit of uh, winter wheat grown here. There's quite a bit of nursery plants grown here. There's fruit, nuts, um, all kinds of stuff grown here. So. Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty fertile valley soil. and uh, the range of crops is is pretty vast.
1: So it's amazing soil and I notice some background noise. It's amazing soil part, and, and a lot of it is There's a little bit of background noise on your side. If you if you have a radio or something going, maybe turn it off.
2: Oh, I don't have a radio. There's somebody oh, standing the, the walls the of the church I'm in.
1: <laughs> oh no.
2: Yeah, they're um, painting the outside, so I'll try to go as far away as I can.
1: Got it, got it, got it. So let's talk about your particular operation and and the project of the Bean and Green project that you've been involved with.
2: Okay. Well, my farm is called A2R Farms. It's uh, owned by my family. Um, my family has been farming in that immediate area uh, near Corvallis since the 60s. Uh, my grandfather moved here from uh, Alberta, Um, My father was pretty young at the time, and they started growing grass seed, wheat, and they ran Chevy at Sheep. And then my dad ended up leaving Oregon for a little while, and when he came back, he started managing the farm of my grandfather's closest friend, who was starting to get a little older, needed a little bit more help, so my dad started managing that farm, um, which is the one that he currently owns back in the 90s, and then he purchased it when Fred Allen, the former owner, retired um, in 2005. So my dad is on the current farm since Um We put up a grass seed cleaning warehouse and expanded the acreage a little bit. Um, and then in the late 2000s, we started diversifying out of mostly grass seed into um, more grains, um, beans, and edible seeds. And we started doing that because we've been a part of the Southern Willamette Valley Green, Bean and Grain Project for the last, ooh, probably two and a half, three years now. Um, and we started becoming involved with those growers because, well, the grass seed market had always been volatile. Um, and we were looking to diversify out of grass seed, but also we wanted to increase the amount of food that we were growing. So we met a few like-minded farmers, and they told us about the Bean and Grain Project. We started going to meetings, and it became pretty clear that these guys were on to something. So they started advising us about what they felt could do well, uh, varieties, uh, and you know, tips on when and how to plant, things like that. So, But it, it has been a whole bunch of trial and error. I mean, we've had some matching successes, and we've had some terrible failures. So all in all, it's been a really positive experience. So I think that it's really important that... Um, more farmers in this area grow crops like this because if we keep relying on grass seed to fuel the agricultural economy around here, then I, I really don't see the grass seed business ever getting back the way it was, and it'd be really great if more of the large-scale farmers in particular around here um, started devoting more of their acres to things like beans, grains, and edible seeds. And the reason we're interested in beans, grains, and edible seeds is because they're staple foods. Um, Vegetables do really well here, and there's a lot of organic vegetable farms around, but there really aren't that many growers who are growing staple food, Um, certainly not organically. I mean, there is quite a bit of wheat grown here. Soft white winter wheat is the primary uh, variety of wheat, and most of that is exported to Asia. So um, the amount of growers that are actually growing things like hard red wheat, uh, uh, non-feed oats, like naked oats that we're growing, um, and beans like pintos, black beans, garbanzos, flax, things like that. They're, they're pretty, there's only a few of them. So um, we'd really like to see more growers get on board because we've, we've started to have some really nice successes, um, in particular with the flax, oats, and hard red wheat. So, um, yeah, we've seen some really positive things happen in the last year. So
1: I like this. I like your going from the kind of zoom-out perspective of what the valley needs more of into the practical application, which is trial and error and bringing back the biology on your own farm and investing in the equipment that it takes to plant crops that aren't traditional to your farm but are, in fact, very traditional to the valley. Um, Can you reflect a little bit on the change in culture that comes with growing food and not just growing grass seed and... Actually, let's even step back a step further and say, "What do you mean, growing grass seed? Why would you ever grow seeds from grass? Doesn't grass come in strips?"
2: Yeah, grass seed is used throughout the world for a whole bunch of different things. I mean, everything from pastures to lawns, golf courses, anything that you know, anywhere you need grass, you're going to need grass seed. So, and, and the Willamette Valley is the grass seed capital of the world. So. Um, The vast majority of the grass seed grown in the United States is grown here in the Willamette Valley. So, um, that is what dominates the agricultural economy here, and as a result, the infrastructure as well. So, the processing, the cleaning, the storage, all those things are are specialized for grass seed. There's very little grain storage in the valley, Uh, there's very little um, grain or bean or seed processing. Um, It's difficult to get some crops cleaned, um, particularly retail ready. So, that's then probably the biggest task that we've had is trying to re-institute the necessary infrastructure that growers need in order to not just grow these crops but bring them to market. I mean, we found that when we were growing hard red wheat in the first couple of years that very few people wanted to buy large quantities of hard red wheat berries. Um but they did want flour, so we kept assuming, oh, someone's going to have to put up a mill sooner or later. Um, and eventually that someone became us. Uh, the company built a mill down in Brownsville, which is about 30 minutes southeast of Corvallis, um, about a year ago. And so in the past year, we've milled, oh, I think we're doing several thousand pounds a month now. So um, the mill is humming is right along, but it, it is our biggest bottleneck. We do need to scale up if we're going to be able to actually be able to process all of the crops we can grow. So also storage is a really big one. That's that's something that, that definitely needs to be addressed. Um, most of the storage around here is set up for grass seed. I mean, it's not really food grade. So food grade, pest proof, um, moisture proof storage is a, a critical component in allowing us to bring more of this food to market. Um, so until things like that are scaled up... Um, we're still going to see only incremental increases in the amount of food that is grown here. I mean, we, we could plant a lot more um, wheat, beans, oats, oh, things like that, but we're pretty limited in, in what we plant because we just know that there's only so much we can store and process. So right now the okay, storage so and the processing are, are definitely the bottlenecks.
1: Okay, so so here you are. You're, in, you're totally involved in a business way in a bottleneck of re-regionalizing our food supply. And you probably have some insights from that perspective of how in other regions with similar problems or similar kind of re-regionalization efforts, getting back the processors, getting back the slaughterhouses, getting back the bakeries and creameries and cold storage and milling and storage facilities, what, uh, what should we do? What would be the strategic thing if somebody was interested to make a plan and a system to address the kinds of changes that are needed in, in real businesses in real time? What's your I think the single most
2: of, the single most important thing that anyone could do is setting up a mechanism where interested people can invest in a, a group or a collective that has the knowledge but not necessarily the funds and I'm talking about us right now um, to to set up the necessary infrastructure. Um, I met with a group from Maine that was essentially doing the same thing they were They weren't farmers, but they were interested in milling. So they bought an old space, and then they had some grants that they had received that they bought old milling equipment with, and then they were um, basically trying to get the word out to small growers in the area that, hey, we have a mill. We want to buy wheat from you. If you don't grow wheat, will you grow wheat from us? And that has allowed them to increase dramatically increase the amount of local flour they're able to uh, grow and sell in that area. I mean, Maine used to be a wheat-growing area a long time ago, and then it all shifted to the Midwest mostly. But that's a really good example. So I would say investing in processing is probably the single biggest thing that people need to do, not necessarily just the processing, but all the infrastructure, the storage, cleaning, um, bagging, anything you need to bring a crop from field to fork. Um, I mean, there's a lot of growers out there, but there aren't necessarily a lot of cleaners, millers, packers that are interested in doing it locally. I mean, all of these processes have been shifted over to larger companies that, you know, do everything on these vast scales. So, if we want more local food, we need more local processors.
1: So, I was just on the web on the on the internet watching videos and reading all the propaganda of the United Steelworkers Union and mm-hmm. the head of the union was explaining how in the last 10 years 48,000 um, factories uh, where steel manufacturing was happening have closed in the U.S. And I was just mm-hmm. thinking about all the machine, machinist knowledge that's embodied in those factories and those jobs and in those people who have had to kind of seek work in other sectors. I was thinking, mm-hmm. man, those would be some useful allies in all the you know, fabrication that's going to have to go on to retool the equipment and build new equipment to accommodate the needs that we were Coming up against, how do you ensure that that the cooperative or the group or the farmers nonprofit formed for the purpose of, you know, promoting grain growing? How do you ensure that that um, provides enough equity to the farmers, and that it doesn't become well that it stays at the right scale and is kind of operating properly?
2: Well, that's been one of the challenges that we've been dealing with because here we have some farmers that are part of our group that have enormous farms. And we also have some farms that are part of our group that are extremely small. I mean, homestead scale, only a few acres. So it has been challenging to try to find a a pricing structure that works for everyone, because obviously the farmer that has thousands of acres can produce a bushel of wheat far more cheaply than someone on a few acres. So we've done a lot of work in trying to figure out how best to get these types of of groups to work together and so far what we've been trying to do is use the smaller farmers for more specialty crops like heirloom beans things like that and keep the larger farms um, chiefly growing hard red wheat oats, flax, things that are in demand on a large scale um, also the smaller farms have been growing a lot of seed stock um, for some of the larger farms so it, it is difficult. It's challenging to try to get the the right pricing to the small farms, so that they can compete and they're not drowned out by even a very well-meaning uh, large partner. So, yeah, it's it's something that we're still working on.
1: But ultimately, don't just I mean, it's it feels so right the way that you're approaching this with bigger farmers and smaller farmers, thinking in terms of cooperation and the fulfillment of a goal. And conceiving of yourselves, you know, in a more team-like fashion, and not purely as independent, autonomous uh, entrepreneurs, but really as a collaboration. So that's kind of that's kind of different from what you see in other sectors, and I, I think, will probably work to the advantage of the growers in the long run.
2: I think that's I think that's a perhaps not unique, but maybe something that's a little special about Oregon that the kind of people that the Willamette Valley attracts and a lot of the farmers that, that grow here um, have that kind of mindset, um, that, that team-oriented, working for the collective good mindset. I mean, I know in a lot of circles, farmer circles, they're notoriously clicky and tight-lipped. So um, it has been really nice to meet and work with a lot of the farmers that, that are part of our group. Uh, it's really encouraging to see the kind of attitudes and the kind of energy they bring to the table.
1: So, so let's talk a little bit about um, the particular crops that have been really awesome and that you've enjoyed, and also the kind of equipment, the equipment situation. Breaking it down a little bit for our listeners, who many of whom may be coming from a vegetable growing background, and who are mm-hmm. perhaps interested in. You know, getting bigger, and I really notice in the young farmer world that people are starting to think about like pushing the boundaries of of scale and and working on amping up their production as they get comfortable in the in the kinds of CSA model and just being like, all right, let's take it to the next level. Um, how did you you came? Tell us about where you were coming from in terms of equipment, and and then and where you've gone.
2: Well, all of our equipment was set up for grass seed and um, grain farm before. I mean, we have, and what was fortunate about the crops that we were told would succeed was that we didn't need um, really any additional equipment to be able to grow those crops. I mean, we could use the grass seed equipment and the, the wheat equipment for these other crops. So um, it all basically comes down to, If you have access to a combine, that will make your life much, much, much easier. So um, I know for a lot of people that's just out of reach, but um, I think that's probably the single most important piece of equipment we have is, is our combine. But we have, amongst probably the two largest farms, quite a few tractors of varying sizes that all basically do the same thing. I mean, they basically pull large implements and... It just depends on how big the field is and how quickly you want to get it done. I mean, you don't necessarily need a really big tractor. It it all comes back to how much time you have and how short your window of getting a certain amount of work done is. I mean, for us here in the Northwest, in the spring and in the fall, it can get really, really wet, and sometimes our windows for doing certain types of work are very short. So we really have to go ball to the wall for a little while to get some of the crops in the ground in the spring. Um, but we use, typically in the fall, we'll work up the ground. Um, we'll either disc rip or plow, and then work down the ground with uh, drags, roller harrows, um, discs, things like that, um, and then finish usually with a, a roller. Um, and then we just use our grain drill on everything, and... The grain drill gets a lot of mileage every year. We only have the one drill, and we plant about 870 acres, um, most of it in the fall in the last year. Um, and then in the spring, sometimes we do spring planting crops. I really don't like to do that because in, in Oregon it's really dicey. You're basically you're rolling the dice that you're going to get, you're going to be able to get on the ground early enough to allow those crops to mature before the really hot weather hits. If I can't get on the ground until, say, late April, then it's really pushing it. So I'd like to get some of those crops in in March, um, particularly spring wheat. I like to plant spring wheat in February if possible, but sometimes you just can't drive on the ground. Um, so we also have a few specialized pieces of equipment that allow us to get on extremely wet ground. We have a tube buggy for fertilizing, um, we have a three wheel gator buggy for spraying compost tea. Um, another liquids, so those two things I couldn't, I just couldn't get by with in this valley because without something that can drive on extremely soft soil, you're 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 not going to get any work done, your crops won't grow. So um, it, again, though, it all comes down to just where you're at and the climate for your area. But um, having a combine makes life so much easier. I mean, one combine between many farms. Um, can do quite a bit of work if those farms are all, you know, not too big. So um, I've I've seen examples of groups of farms that have all banded together and invested in, in one combine, and then that thing is just passed around at uh, harvest time, and it does the work for several farms. So um, that's pretty much what we use. It's um, 8820 combines are about 1980s. Uh, most of our tractors are. 1970s or so. Um, still going strong.
1: Still going strong. So people who are interested to learn about grain growing, they can go and ch- tune in to all these wonderful small grain growing um, uh, working groups that are forming in all different parts of the country. And in Oregon and Washington, um, Washington State University has just got a great program. I'm going to interview Stephen Jones on the radio later on who runs a program. Great. What's your, is, where are you getting your expertise from, and, and do you need interns? Do you need investors? What are you, what are you looking for?
2: Um, well, in terms of the growing of the hard red wheat, most of our expertise has come from the trial and error work done by Stalford Seed Farms. They're the largest member of our group. They have about 6,300 acres. They're located near Tangent, which is about 10 miles east of Corvallis. Um, they've been growing hard red wheat i think this is the eighth season now so they had a lot of trial and error they brought in a variety that initially they thought would be a, they thought was a failure after the first year because they didn't even get their seed stock back but they planted what did come up and then the following year i think they had planted seventy five a hundred pounds and they ended up getting almost three thousand pounds So and then they planted that again and by the eighth season now they're seeing anywhere between two and three thousand pounds an acre which is really really high for hard red wheat in the valley. So, um, their knowledge has been invaluable in terms of, you know, what to plant, when to plant it, you know, how to work the ground, and so on and so forth. Um, First.